0: okay I'm glad you're here I want to I want to share a story with you which is um I, I never shared and it's a uh it's a crazy story it's it's actually when I think about it I think that it's impossible that actually this could have happened and yet it absolutely happened and I have witnesses and it happened to me so it's I uh you're hearing it from the person it happened to um and it's, it's about kind of like the start of a very meaningful friendship uh, that I have with a, a guy who's, uh, who's like my brother, you know? And um, he's in town now, so that's, that's uh, we were just talking about this yesterday, so that's why I'm thinking about it. But anyway, many years ago, maybe, I don't know, I don't know how many years ago it was, maybe 10, 15 years ago, somewhere in there, we were on a TV show together. And he was starting to become more interested in uh, kind of just finding out more about Judaism and things like that, was starting to ask me some questions. I was uh, observant at the time. He was interested, but wasn't formally uh, observant. Uh, Certainly, he had a lot of love in his heart for for God and Torah and things like this. But um, anyway, so, but it was really, we had really just met and... uh, and I had an office down the hall from him, and it hit me that um, that there was a book that I thought that he would really enjoy, and not a not a Torah book. It's a it's a uh, you know a, a, a work of literature, and I recommend it to everyone. Actually, this author to everyone, he's fantastic. His name um, is Borges. Uh, the way you spell that is B-O-R-G-E-S, and he's a South American. Uh, author, he's not living at this point, wasn't Jewish, but actually studied Kabbalah and um, all wrote uh, very intricate short stories. And when I say intricate, what I mean by that is they were all like meditations on infinity. So they're all really way out amazing, amazingly conceived um, ideas, incredible imagination. Um, if you're familiar with the artist M.C. Escher, a lot of his writing is sort of like the literary equivalent of, a, of an Escher uh, drawing, um, which are all sorts of interlocking different perspectives all going on simultaneously. So anyway, he's, he's, a, he's, he's a very important uh, uh, author in, 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 in the world of uh, literature. Um, and uh, anyway, so I'm thinking about this one particular story uh, that he wrote called Pierre Menard, Author of Quixote. And um, of course, uh, Pierre Menard was not the author of Don Quixote. Cervantes was. But the, 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 the story goes like this. And it's such, a, it's such a just a way out notion. So I'm going to tell you the, the story. Appropriately, I haven't read it in, I don't know, maybe 30 years or something like that. You'll see why that's appropriate. But anyway, the, uh, the, the story goes like this, if, if I remember correctly. And once, once I got this concept in my head, I, I never really forgot it because I was always so intrigued by it. So it's about um, a person who has read Don Quixote, um, which, as you know, is one of the greatest works of world literature, it's one, of the, one of the you know, like world-class masterpieces like on the level of Shakespeare and everything like this. So anyway, he reads Don Quixote, this person, this character in the story, Pierre Menard, um, as a kid. And then, as an adult, doesn't review it, so he read it once, but many, many, many years ago. And then, as an adult, he sets about to write Don Quixote. In other words, he sets about to start writing the book consciously, he's doing this on purpose, consciously to write this book exactly as Cervantes wrote it, word for word as Cervantes wrote it, like, much later in his life, when he only has a vague memory of, of, of having read it, of, of what it said, you know? So, so, so Borges chronicles this process of him sitting down and trying to come up with the plot, basically. And, and coming up with the, the language, which is the most appropriate language to advance the plot. And so basically he has to independently write Don Quixote's By Cervantes. And then after years and years and drafts and drafts of working on this, he finally succeeds in writing the book By Cervantes. But as it's written and as it exists even within the realm of his world on multiple bookshelves all over the place. So his... His masterpiece, the, his masterpiece is that he succeeded in independently duplicating <laughs> that which already exists. But he somehow is able to do it through his own great talent and perseverance and imagination. So it is, in fact, a tremendous accomplishment. But who would ever think to, to devote their life to such a thing? You hear? Anyway. So we'll get to more about perhaps the meaning of that later. But I just want to go back to this story. So, so we're working together, and it hits me because I, for some reason I'm thinking about this. I've never stopped thinking about that story, by the way. Uh, it was only yesterday that my friend gave me an explanation of what that story actually means, which I'm going to share with you in a moment, at least in the Torah context. Um, but anyway, so... So it just hits me in my head, you know what, this guy, this friend of mine would really I think he'd really like Borges. And I think that he would really like this story, Pierre Menard, author of Quixote. So I say, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell him I'm gonna tell him that he should read this. You know, I'm gonna recommend it to him. So I walk into his office. Here's the end of the story, okay? I walk into his office, and he's got kind of a messy desk. There on the desk is the short stories of Borges. Not only that, but there's a bookmark in the book, and it's on the page, the first page, of Pierre Menard, author of Quixote. Now, I promise you I didn't see this book on his desk. I don't think I had actually been in his office yet. So this is impossible. It's impossible. And he has other, Borges has other collections of short stories that this story is not included. So what that book is doing on his desk and a bookmark to that page, and he he hadn't read the story yet, by the way. And I said to myself, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I don't understand how this could have happened. And I thought, you know something, it must be that this friendship is going to be a very, very significant friendship. This is a sign for sure that this is going to be a very, very meaningful friendship. And in in fact, it has turned out to be an extraordinarily close, very meaningful, life-changing relationship. So anyway, that's the story. So what's his, what is his, uh, so my friend came up with a a beautiful explanation um, of this story. And he said that basically this is our lives. This is our lives. You know, if you think about it, excuse me, if you think about it, The Talmud says in Mesech in, in, uh, Nida that all of us inside of our mother's wombs are taught the Torah before we're born. So like the character in uh, Pierre Menard, who read Quixote when he was very young but sort of forgot about it, we are exposed to the Torah in its completeness taught by an angel before we're even born. And then you know that when we're born, the angel touches our us above the lip and We forget it, right? And so this world is a process of relearning the Torah. And so the idea is that we are, so to speak, writing in trying to remember the Torah. It's very much like this person who's trying to reconstruct this book and trying to remember and rewrite this book. But what's so meaningful about it is that our lives are the book. We are the book. Do you understand? And so our quest is to create with our own actions and our own thoughts and our own choices. That which we were exposed to before we were born. In other words, we're given a vision of perfection, if you will, or a a vision, um, perhaps even more significantly, of ultimate harmony. And we set about to to tune our instrument, if you will, and to create with our life that which we were exposed to, but which is just a, a distant memory. You know, one of the very deep explanations of, you know, on, on, on Rosh Hashanah, it says that uh, there are books that are opened, right? There's the book of life, and then as... Reb Shlomo would say, the book of not so much, right? He wouldn't like to say the name of the other book, so <laughs> the book of not so much, you know, and, and it's written, <laughs> where is your name going to be written, right? But this deep idea, I've forgotten who says it, I'm sorry, is that actually we're handed the pen, and we decide which book that we're going to write our name in. Through our own choices. And that's, that's very important. Because Judaism is this amazingly sophisticated um, balance. Between understanding that everything is in the hands of God. But that simultaneously because we have free choice. That God is constantly putting it back into our hand. And so while on some level we're very fatalistic. On the other hand, we're also, and I'll explain what I mean by this in a moment, atheistic. <laughs> so what do I mean by atheistic? Atheistic means not to believe in God. God forbid we, we believe wholeheartedly in God. So what do I mean by that? So there's a famous Hasidic story um, from the Alexander Rebbe, who says, who was who approached by someone, um, and this, uh, this Hasid asked him a question. He said, listen, we know that everything that you see with your eyes in this world, is so there's some lesson to teach you about serving, serving God, connecting you know, with the infinite. So what, how can I learn how to serve God from an atheist? <laughs> in other words, if an atheist is a person who denies the existence of God, how am I going to learn to serve God from an atheist? That, that was the question. It's a good question. So the Alexander Rebbe said something just right on. He said something so good. He said, "That he said, here's what you can learn. When someone comes to you with a favor, needs to ask you a favor, or needs to ask you to do something for them, that's when you should be an atheist. In other words, don't tell them God will take care of it. You have to take care of it. <laughs> and that's very deep. That's very, very deep. You know? Because it's like, you know, the path of Kutsk. The Kutzker Rebbe was all about truth, and one of the things that we have to be very um, sensitive to and, and aware of is when we use religiosity as a as an excuse um, or as a um, cover up for laziness, for um, lack of empathy, and for all sorts of other. Uh, uh, bad uh, personality traits. You know, sometimes we have to do something and we have to take the action and yet we put on this this mask of religiousness. Oh, God will take care of it. No, that's the moment when we have to take care of it. So, so, so this, is, this involves a lot of very piercing soul searching. Each time that we get confronted with something, why am I saying this? What do I really believe? Why am I doing this? And then only when a person really searches out their own motives can they actually live on a path of truth. So so this idea that we are active active partners with God in terms of creating ourselves, that that we are handed the pen and we get to decide which book that we're written in on some level. On some level, a person also has a a certain number of years. By the way, I'll tell you something. This is from the Talmud, okay? I I don't hear this discussed too often, but this is a very interesting idea. It's a Torah idea, but again, you don't hear it discussed too often, which is a person, we all say that everyone has a certain number of years, and that's what it is. But a person can get extra years because um, the wicked forfeit certain years. And again, this is this is a Torah thought that those years are up for grabs. <laughs> Can you imagine? Very interesting idea that those years then become available for the righteous. And so that you should just know that such an idea exists in Torah. You know. Uh, Uh, you know i don't know i don 't know the details i don 't know the details um, so so now, I want to go further with this idea so we 're saying that 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 God makes us partners with him in terms of creating ourselves now I want to tell you something which I think is for me a very important and will help to clarify um, how the Torah presents itself because people people have a lot of questions about the way the Torah organizes itself And, and what is included in the Torah and what is not included in the Torah. And some people look and they say, where is this in the Torah? By the way, a famous question is, um, people say, where, where are dinosaurs in the Torah? Like, why, why can't I find dinosaurs in the Torah? And I saw from uh, Gerald Schroeder something very interesting. He says, dinosaurs are absolutely in the Torah. He says, in the very beginning, um, I don't have it at my fingertips right now, but in the creation account, it refers to Tanim Gedolim. And early on in English, this was um, translated as uh, great sea creatures. But the actual root of that word he shows you is actually means reptiles. So you have a reference to great reptiles, which are dinosaurs. That, that's, his, that's his explanation, which is interesting. Um, but anyway, the... The word Torah means to instruct. And the only thing that's included, if you want to include all of reality, how are you going to do that? How big would the Torah be? In in fact, I have to tell you something. It's also a Borges story. And this is another one, just to give you another example of how fantastic and creative his mind is. Listen to this. He writes a story about people who set about to make a map of a country right and the scale of this map is one-to-one meaning to say that the size of the map is exactly the size of the country (laughs) so each thing on the map is the identical size as the thing that it's describing no such a thing is crazy that's completely absurd and I don't remember how the rest of the story goes but that that in itself is great but But the reason why I'm mentioning it now is, imagine if the scale of the Torah to reality were one-to-one. How big would the Torah be? It would be as big as the world itself. And in fact, we do say that God made the world out of the Torah. So there is something to that. But at a certain point, we have to segue from the printed word to like atoms and the fabric of reality itself. But it's no less the Torah. In fact... The prophets refer to this world as a safer, as a book, as a scroll, as a scroll, meaning to say this one-to-one correspondence. But the Torah is very, very selective. What God puts in the Torah itself is only there not to um, summarize or chronicle history. It's not a history book. And it's, 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 it's only there to put landmark teachings that are eternal for us to be able to draw from from all time. So anyone who has a criticism, why isn't this event included? Or, you know, because any historian would include this event. Well, the simple answer is the, the Torah is not a book of history. It's just a book of moral instruction. Okay, it's deeper than that. But, but that's, the, that's the, the angle you have to approach it in. But I didn't make my point yet. Here's the point. Because the Torah tells you this at the very beginning what it is and what it isn't. And it almost does it in a, in a uh, provocative way. Like, you know, we talk about throwing down the gauntlet. Like, it, it, it does it in a way that actually is, well, I'll give you the example, and then we can then see how, uh, how, how best to describe it. The, the, the premise of Judaism, the premise of reality, is that God is one. Okay, that's what we say with Shema. Shema Israel, Shema Lekenu, Shema God, hero Israel. God, our God. God is one. That the entire world is a is a unity. Okay, it's all one, and that God pervades and saturates all of reality, and then exists dimensions beyond our world. Okay. So, so given the fact that that the whole premise. Of the Torah, of this world, of reality, is that God is one. How can you possibly put a verse in the Torah right in the beginning? God saying, Let us create man. Let us create man implies a team of gods, a committee of gods, many gods. Let us create man. You say, this is a, this is, this is, I'm about to read a book, which is about the oneness of God. And it begins with this phrase, let us create man. Who's us? So, so let me give you the, the shot, the, the explanation. But then let me tell you what the rabbis say about that verse, because that's, that's really the point. So, so it, it means that God was talking to the angels, which, again, are not independent beings. They're just sort of an extension of himself, okay? Or on a deeper level, I heard uh, Rabbi Twersky say, he wrote, that let us create man. God was actually talking to each and every one of us, like we were saying earlier, that, that, that it's a partnership. How are you going to – what are you going to make out of your life? What are you going to do with your life? I'm handing you the pen, right? So you shape your life. You try to create that vision of perfection that I shined into your soul in before you were born in your mother's womb. Like, create that with your choices. That's let us create men. Okay. But now here's the point that I really wanted to make. So so the rabbis explain the following. They say that 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 God knew that this could be misinterpreted. But anyone who's going to misinterpret, they're going to go ahead and misinterpret anyway. In other words, a person is asked to make a decision when they approach Torah study. Are you going to makabul, like the word Kabbalah, which is really talking about the deepest secrets of the Torah, Kabbalah means to receive. Are you going to be one who is going to receive the tradition or or not? So if you enter into formal study from the standpoint of I'm a vessel who's going to receive, then you'll understand the verses as they're explained through our tradition. And if not, not. So, so in other words, for the person who says, who reads, "Let us create man," and then scratches their head and says, "Does that mean that there are many gods?" and their teacher says, "No, no, no, that's God talking to the angels, or that's God talking to you," then you go, "Okay, fine, right?" But to the person who enters into Torah study saying, "No, this is what it means, and I'll tell you what it means, and this is a proof that that everything you're saying is," It makes no sense whatsoever and everything like that. That personality will find so many problems in every single line of the Torah. So God, so to speak, is setting up this like fat pussock, like right at the very top. Like, okay, look, you want to find problems? I'm inviting you to find all the problems in the entire world right at the get-go. Here's your opportunity. What do you want to do? You want to be on board and actually understand the Torah as we've understood it for thousands of years? Do you want to be an honest student and receive this tradition? Or do you want to reject it from the outright? Because if you do, I'm giving you an opportunity right at the very beginning. You can deny my oneness and deny the entire premise to this entire thing. So the choice is yours. So it's, 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 here's the word, here's the word that I I was searching for before. What I think is so sort of exciting about that is it, it feels like God is being defiant almost. He's being defiant. He's like offering you this like tremendous opportunity to completely disagree and throw away all the premises of the religion from the beginning or not. Or say, so you, you're on board, or you're not on board. Now that, that doesn't mean, don't, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. The Talmud is giantly huge. To get through it, if you, if you learn one page every day, it will take you seven years to get through it. And probably the majority of the Talmud, this giantly huge thing, is all questions. It's questions and attacks and counterattacks and more questions and more questions. So I'm not talking about, when I say being on board, I'm not talking about not questioning, not struggling to understand, not challenging. You have to, because that's the process of learning. So I'm not trying to short-circuit that, God forbid. But nonetheless, at a certain point, you know, you can call a sandwich a car and insist that it's a car and then complain what a terrible car it is. Or you can say, you know what, it's a sandwich. In other words, the Torah is asking you from the very beginning to recognize what, what it is and to learn it within its own system and its own criteria. And that's what's going on there um, so now I want to talk about an, another example of where the Torah can be openly misunderstood and 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 uh, and this has to do with the chronology of the Torah like how the events roll out in what order um, and The rabbis explain in the Talmud that the Torah is not strictly chronological, meaning to say that some events that actually happen later are put earlier, and some events that happen earlier are put later. And this is just the way God, in his infinite wisdom, sought to organize the Torah itself. Okay? And the classic example that they they show you in other words, this isn't based on interpretation at all. It's just in the words themselves. It's something that we just read yesterday. So the, we're right now in uh, safer Bab Midbar, also known as the Book of Numbers. And the Book of Numbers begins by telling you about um, a census that took place in the second year in the first month. Okay? So... Or rather, I'm sorry, it begins by telling you about a census that took place in the second year, in the second month. Okay? In the second month. And then, if you go on to Parshas um, Peloscha, it's actually um, uh, chapter uh, 9, verse 1. It tells you about an event that took place in the second year, in the first month. Okay, so in other words, the book begins with an event that happens in the second month of the second year and then a few parshas later tells you about an event that happened before that, in the first month of the second year. It's clearly clearly out of order. There's no, oh, really, it means this or it means that. Sometimes we say that, but not here. It's just simply out of order, right? Nothing more to it than that. Okay, so... So as an aside, I just want to say that to the so-called Bible critics, that if there was an effort to deceive in the organization of the Torah, why not just switch those two events, right? Or why not just change the numbers? Put in the very first one, the first month, and then put in the the second one, the second month you know you could keep them in order and just change the dates like anyone who is trying to be tricky it's the simplest thing in the world to correct this quote unquote mistake if that's what it would be viewed as was found thousands of years ago so it's not like oh we've recently found this thing this was always known so 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 again the torah itself is purposely, consciously out of order. And then the question is why? Why would God choose to put this event later? Or this event earlier? Why? And each one is going to teach us something very, very deep. Okay. So I want to give you my interpretation of this particular one. Because right after the out of order thing, um, in Veloscha, uh, and this is uh, chapter 9, verse 8, uh, verse 6, I'm sorry. It talks about one of the most interesting things, in my opinion, in the Torah, which is that this uh, sort of strange, quote-unquote, minor holiday called Pesach Sheini. Um, Pesach Sheini is, is really intriguing because basically what you had was, Pesach means Passover, right? Passover is happening in the first month. And on the 14th day of the first month, in the, holiday, uh, the, the, the month of Nisan, you would bring what was called a Korban Pesach. That was the Passover offering. And this was like a very, very major event uh, uh, among the Jewish people when we had a, a holy temple and we could bring offerings. In fact, this was actually your membership dues of being a Jew. So it was like very, very important. It was a very, very significant thing. Um, and now what happens if you missed it for some reason? And what happens in the Torah is, is that there are people who uh, are, uh, it's in, in Hebrew we say tamay meis, which means that they had been in contact with a, um, with, a, with a corpse. And whose corpse it was, there's a bit of a debate about some people say it was Yosef. Some people say it was Nadav and Avihu. But whatever it is, they had come into contact with this corpse. And as a result, they were uh, ritually impure, meaning to say that they weren't in a state yet where they could go into the Holy Temple and bring this offering. And they come up to Moshe, and they complain. And they say, you know something? We didn't do anything wrong. In the event that they were carrying Yosef, that's, that's the, you know, we know that Joseph." made us swear that we would carry out his bones from Egypt and bury them in Israel. And so Joseph was, you know, one of the greatest, greatest, greatest ever, 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 ever. So I should be punished for carrying his bones? That I shouldn't be able to offer the, the you know, the Korban Pesach, the Passover offering? Or in the event that it was not of Nevi, Aaron's two sons who died in the Mishkan, these were two of the holiest people there's an opinion that Nadav and view were holier than Moshe and Aaron. So by 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 treating their corpses properly and getting them out and you know giving them a proper burial or whatever it was, for for that I shouldn't be able to participate in in this great mitzvah. So they, they so Moshe so they, they they tell Moshe and Moshe goes, oh yeah you know that's a really good point. I don't know what the halacha is. I don't know what to do. Let me ask God. You know this is one of the instances where Moshe says, I don't know, I'll ask God. And it shows you the amazing relationship that Moshe had with God, that God could just turn to God, that Moshe could just turn to God, ask him the question, and he'd get the answer immediately. There's an amazing example of that. And also of um, Moshe's humility, that Moshe was very happy to say, I don't know. You know, the the and bruchas says that all of us, have to train our tongues to be able to say, I don't know, because it doesn't come naturally to a person. You know, everyone feels somehow diminished or embarrassed if they don't know, if they don't know. But it's okay. You can say, I don't know. I know there's a rabbi who told me that he, if he doesn't say, I don't know twice in every talk, that he knows that there's something wrong with him. <laughs> so he's, there's some people who are like very, very, very strict about this. But anyway, so... So God tells Moshe, You know what? Um, I'm gonna make a separate holiday just for them. One month later, okay, so so remember you bring the Passover offering on the the fourteenth day of the first month. On the fourteenth day of the second month, we're gonna call this Pesach Sheni, which means the second Passover, right? And they're gonna have an opportunity to do a makeup. And and they can go and bring the offering them. Now, in terms of Jewish thought, this is a very significant idea because basically the way Reb Shlomo would say it is that Pesach Sheni is like the capital of second chances. And he would always say, and, and, and who among us doesn't need a second chance? Right? So second chances, that's, that's so much what this whole world is about, you know. The whole world, the whole word Breishis, which the, be, begins the Torah, Breishis. I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, means not in the beginning, but out of beginnings, with beginnings. With beginnings, God created the world, meaning to say that the fabric of reality itself is made out of beginnings. Meaning to say that every single moment literally is a new beginning because the world is literally made out of beginnings. Meaning to say you're never stuck. That you can go in any direction at any time. And people feel so chained to their past. But that that's, that shows a lack of recognition of what the world is actually made out of. You know, I always... Try to give this example, it, it, it came to me one time, I, I remember from geometry, um, when I was in high school, that a solid line is actually made out of an infinite number of discrete dots. See, if you draw a line, it looks like a solid entity. And, and so if you're like, I always think of this example, let's say a person's on a diet, and now they find themselves walking toward the freezer, right, they're gonna get some ice cream, right? And then you say to yourself, as you're walking toward the freezer, uh, I don't really want to, but I'm already walking toward the freezer, so I guess the choice has already been made, right? So that's the idea that, that a line is actually a solid structure, that once you start down that path, that you're sort of locked into that path. But the reality is that, that a line is an infinite number of dots, and each dot is not connected to the previous dot, And it's not connected to the next dot. Which means that at any point you can pivot and go in any direction that you want at any point in your life with any activity. You can be feeling like, I gotta do this. And you know in your heart it's the wrong thing. Okay, that was good for one moment ago. Now you're free again. Now you're free again. So, Pesach Sheni, that's brishis. That means... That with beginnings, with beginnings God created the world. That the whole world is just one beginning after another beginning after another beginning after another beginning and we're not stuck. You you can think that you're stuck but it's not true. Okay. So now let me go back to this idea of chronology and put all these thoughts together. Okay. So what did I tell you? I told you that the the, the the book of Numbers, right? Sefer Bamitbar begins with an event in the second month. Right? And then a few chapters later it tells you about an event that happened in the first month of that year. Okay, so out of order. Then after that, right after that, all of a sudden we have something about Pesach Sheni, second chances. So how do those things fit together? Okay, so now we have to get a little deeper and just explain the connection between something being out of order and a second chance. So so just like the Torah is out of order, all of us individually are Torahs. You're a Torah scroll, I'm a Torah scroll, everyone is a Torah. You see this? On many, many different levels, but I'll just give you a few quick examples. Our tradition is that each person is made out of 613 parts. We know there's 613 mitzvot in the Torah. And the rabbis break it down even further. They say that we have 248 organs and 365 sinews. And again, that breakdown parallels the positive and negative Commandments in the Torah itself. So each person mirrors the Torah. We're we're organized and and made, so to speak, like the Torah. Two more examples. The custom when a, a woman is pregnant is for her husband to open up the ark and to open up the doors of the ark and to take out the Torah scroll. And that's a sagula, that's a blessing for an easier childbirth. And you can see just in that, in that ritual itself, the birthing process. The doors are open and a scroll is taken out, right? So what is the scroll? What is the Torah scroll? That's the baby. So there's another example of a human being being a Torah scroll. And another example is that, and this kind of came to me last week, um, is that a coffin, we should all live long, a coffin is, um, in Hebrew, it's called an Aaron. Now, an Aaron, that's the name of the ark where you keep the Torah. So isn't it interesting that a coffin is called an Aaron, which implies that the contents are a Torah scroll, right? Because you keep a Torah in an Aaron. So there's another example where a human being is referred to as a Torah scroll. Okay, so, and there are many more, there are many, many more examples, by the way. Um, So now, so now, if the Torah, if we're Torah scrolls, what does it mean if a Torah is written out of order? That means on some level, the story of our lives are written out of order. Now, we believe in reincarnation. And one of the reasons why I think life is so confusing is because sometimes we'll enter into a situation that we don't fully understand. Why is this happening the way it's happening? And sometimes it's because this is from a past life and we're given the opportunity to fix something. Remember, Rev Shlomo explained to me one time that this entire world is like a hospital clinic. Everybody is here to fix something. Everybody. Right? So so you find yourself in a situation and you go, this is so strange. What, what, what is this? And it could be that this is from a previous life. In other words, your life is like a little bit out of order. This chapter actually comes from an earlier, earlier event, from a previous life. Do you understand? So now... I want to use this to explain why it is that this holiday, Pesach Sheini, is mentioned after the clearest example of the Torah being out of order. Because what did we say Pesach Sheini is? The holiday of second chances. And so once you experience one of these out of order moments in your life, all of a sudden now you're encountering something from a a past lifetime. What is happening at that moment? You are given, being given at that moment a second chance to make a tikkun, to make a correction, to choose differently than you chose the first time, not to get angry, or perhaps to get angry, to run away as opposed to stick around, or perhaps it's to stick around instead of to run away. <laughs> have to know what, the, what is being asked of you. What the halacha is, and so so this is uh, perhaps on one level, what's what's going on in terms of the the arrangement of the the verses of the Torah and the way God is organizing things, you know. So. I think uh, let's just stop here.